Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. There are moments in our lives that when we step into that moment, nothing in our world is ever the same again. Hetty Johnson is a household name in Australia because she was confronted with one of these moments after her daughter shared with her something that no parent ever wants to hear. Hetty is a woman of passion and determination, and in 1997 she established Brave Hearts Foundation, Australia's leading child protection advocate. In 2016, Hetty was acknowledged for her work in the community through an Order of Australia medal, something she's incredibly proud of. In this conversation, Hetty shares how the experience of adopting out her first daughter when Hetty was only 16, simply a child herself, unlocked in her the awareness of what it's like to lose a child. She also shares how she's approaching her 60th birthday, which is a time of reflection of what she has achieved, but she's also acutely aware of the work that still needs to be done in the area of child protection. This conversation goes into child sexual assault and can be confronting at times. If it does bring up any issues for you as you listen, then I encourage you to reach out to the Brave Hearts website, which is www.bravehearts.org.au and their counselling support service, which is free in Australia. The number is 1800 272 831. What I walked away from this conversation is Hetty's tenacity and determination. She has pledged to never stop pursuing her vision for Australia to become the safest place in the world to raise a child. What a vision, right? With the proven record of doing what she says she's going to do, I have a feeling that she may make this a reality. I'm sure some of this tenacity will rub off on you as you listen to the amazingly determined Hetty Johnson. Hetty, it's such a delight to sit down with you and have you in studio. Ditto. I enjoy it. This is going to be fun. I, it will I'm be fun. looking forward to it. <laughs> it will be fun. You don't have to look no at the pressure. door or run away. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Look, I want to start. You've had um, such an incredible journey, and that word gets overused a million times, yeah. but um, so many different pathways to your career, to your life, and actually the two have folded together yes, they have. Um, very, very strongly. But I'd love to take you back to um, 2016, and if you can describe for me the moment when you were told that you would be receiving an Order of Australia medal, where were you? How did that unfold, oh. and what did that mean to you at the time? Well, I was at home. Um, here in Queensland, and it was a, a letter in the mail that said, "You know, you can't tell anybody, but this is what's happening." I, I was, uh, I, I was just in disbelief. I was so happy. I have to tell you, though, I was so super proud. You know, I did start crying, and I thought, "This is amazing." I never thought this would happen for me. You know, but it's a big deal. And and had I've, you had any inkling leading up to that? No, I, letter, I, I mean you don't stop and think about what what all that's happening around. You know, you don't even, and you're not supposed to know about it. And it works because I didn't have a clue. And um, I was just super proud, and I still am. It's it's for me. It's the it's the um, the biggest deal in terms of recognition um, because what there's no it, politics. What there's, does it mean to you? Um, I think it's very individual, and I think it wasn't political. So this isn't this isn't about uh, a government deciding who's going to win what, or you know, it's there's no politics in this. This is all based on merit. 
So even people that some folk think probably like me shouldn't be getting it, get it if the if the system decides that your contribution to Australian society is sufficient or is, is um, worthy, if you like, of that kind of recognition. So I felt worthy and I, it felt nice because in my business you get, there's a lot of rocks get thrown around. So um, it was a case of, it just gave me more energy and more steam to think, okay, I'm on the right track. It's okay. I just keep doing what I'm doing. We're doing something to make an impact. We certainly are. I mean, I know that. I'm super proud of what we've done um, as an organisation and as a family. So um, there's nothing ever going to take that away from me. I'm I'm proud. I mean, none of us are perfect. I'm, don't, I'm not without making mistakes along the way. I make them every day. I suppose we all do. But ultimately, the end at the end of the day, we have changed the way this nation thinks about children and protects them against sexual assault. It's been a long journey. It's straws on a camel's back and there are so many straws. Um, But we're getting there and we're never going to get there in my lifetime ultimately where I want to be, which is that Australia is the safest place in the world to raise a child because that's going to take a lot of investment from government, a lot of political will, a lot of focus. It means making children, bringing them to the top of the political agenda. But you don't see those results in an electoral cycle. It'll take two or three electoral cycles to see the results. And so politicians, because they have to go up, show up the polls, are interested in what happens at the next election. And that's just sad. The short-term vision versus Very the short-term term. vision. So that vision of Australia is the safest place mm. for children to be, to grow yeah. up. Yeah, because we can be. We've done the research. So we've looked around the Western world. We've compared Australia with New Zealand, Canada, uh, the UK, and all 50 of the United States states individually because they're all different like Australia. Um, and we've looked at where best practice is across across those um, nations and we've come and we had a little sneaky peek at Canada as well but we didn't quite have the resources to get in there Um, but we did particularly look at the Indigenous stuff in Canada and we know that we can become and sadly you know what the bar is really low the bar is really low right around the world so it's not difficult to become on these um, you know by they're sort of self-selected parameters, though, mm. um, to become the safest place. And why wouldn't we want to do that? We're let's a young get there, nation, and let's then get let's there. raise the bar. Let's do it. Let's prioritise. I can't. I can't. Just can't get my head around how anybody, politician or not, can't put children first. I just. My head doesn't grasp it. I just can't get it. So, but that's what we don't do. That we don't actually put children first. If you ask people what's important to them, they'll tell you you know, energy prices and, and I know they're important because people are, you know, they're not eating because they've got to pay the power bills and that's a whole other story of government screwing things up. But um, so, you know, but I just, there is still nothing more important than our children. I mean, you're not going to be lying on your deathbed saying, look after my BMW, Yeah, you know. <laughs> you can. I'm so glad I got the best deal on my energy rate. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, that's why yes. I found the best power provider in the world. <laughs> or I've got a million dollars in the bank. That's not what it's about. Yeah. It's about people at the end of the day and the most important people are our children, our families. And that's obviously a big part of what, what you do. Where does your dogged determination come from? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't. And it didn't It didn't come till later in my life either. I don't think it did anyway. Or maybe it did. Maybe there were little glimpses of it now that you ask that and I think back. Um, Where did you grow up? In, in Geelong, an ocean grove in okay. Victoria. 
Beautiful. Loved my childhood. I had the best childhood in the world. Like, I really did. Um, I heard someone say the other day that everybody says that, but then when you drill down, there's something really not right in it. And I think, oh, what's so pessimistic, yeah. you know? Um, of course, everybody's, no one's perfect and parents aren't perfect, but I had a beautiful childhood. I had a great childhood. Um, so Did you yeah. know what you wanted to be when you grew up? Was I that wanted to be a nurse. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to be a nurse and I have a very good friend who also wanted to be a nurse and we were going to go do nursing together. I finished up being a, a, a sort of an accountant, a financial manager in the end. <laughs> That's very different to nursing. Very different and computers. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so... How did that change? Where did that well, because from? I fell pregnant when I was 16 and I had a child and I adopted her put her up for adoption back then. That was what happened. It was right actually when Whitlam is, now, now that I look back as an adult, I can see in 1975, this is when all that changed and that's when she was born. So, um, but anyway, um, so she was given up for adoption. And by the time I got back to home to, you know, so I had to stop studying in year 11, um, every, all the rules had changed and you needed year 12 to get into nursing. So I couldn't get into nursing. By the way, before I leave that subject, um, because that sounded very flippant, it's probably one of the most revolting things that's ever happened in my life. Mm. And if I talk about it too much, I get upset, so I I try not to. But suffice to say, when she was 15, she came back and she's she's now 42 and she is a Johnston and and her daughter is a Johnston. So we have come back together, thank God. Did she reach out to you? Yes, she did when she was just 15. And um, she was unhappy and she reached out and I, she came and lived with us and we've been together ever since and she's gorgeous and I adore her mm. and I adore all of, all of my kids, you know. Um, but what it did do is it teaches you really just how important children are. I mean, I've still got the, the hospital band when she was born, you know, and I write poetry every year until I met her. Um, just a big part of me was missing and I couldn't put it back together and mm. it was, she was stolen from me. Like I had no way to, to keep her. I didn't have anything, you know. I didn't have anything at all. Couldn't buy milk, let alone everything you need for a child. So when you and do you were this, a child yourself at the time. Child. For needing, I was such a naive little supported. girl, seriously. Yeah. Um, I don't know about little girl. I've never been little, but um, <laughs> um, I was naive. Certainly I was naive. And, uh, yeah, no, so I thought, and I'm, you know, it's a, you can have an abortion, but I don't actually believe, personally, I don't believe in abortion. I don't cast judgment on anybody else, but I don't believe in it. I can't do that. I couldn't do it. So I thought the best thing I can do is give her a life. If I can't give her anything else, I can give her a life. And in my mind, you know, there's amazing people out there who can't have children, want children, um, would just be the most beautiful, loving parents. And if I never heard from her again, that would be because the decision was right that she would be happy, she would be content, she would have everything I ever wanted her to have and that would be great except my heart would continue to break mm. because every, you know, every year I write I write back to the department and say, well, here I am, I've changed a dress, you know. Just in case. Just in case, here yeah. I am. If you're making, leaving all the doors open for her to contact me one day. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so it's a very difficult thing to do and it's not, and, and it's, different for everybody too. Some people can do this and, and I've met them. I've spoken to women who've given their children up and they don't, they don't, um, they don't feel the way I feel about it. Mm-hmm. So we're all individuals. We all feel differently. But I'm just super, super grateful to the universe for giving me my daughter back. <laughs> that's all, I can, that's mm-hmm. all I can say about that. And the so connection to children, the connection to children. Connection such to loss. At a young age. And, and yeah. yes, and that whole importance of children and the, yeah, and the, 
you know, it's, a, it's instinctive. You can't walk away from that. That's mm. just there, you know. You can, it's unconditional love and it's just there. Um, but it did mean that I didn't finish year, year 12, which meant so I didn't become out the window. <laughs> so I came home and um, did some other, you know, odd jobs and then I got a job in Melbourne in a computer um, software company, one of the first, the first online computer, um, you know, flag super Sally for all the old farts out there mm. that can remember that. Um, and yeah, and just life went from there really, in, in that in that environment. And and when did your your next children come along? You know? So I, then I got endometriosis, which was the end of I thought ever having children, um, and I had a few operations. I you know. They said you'd, ne- you'd never have children, so I was a bit despondent about that for a long time and then just sort of dealt with it and thought, oh, well, that's my punishment, I suppose, yeah. or whatever that was. Yes, I just, yeah. that's my lot in life, yeah. so that's that. Um, and then I met my beautiful husband in Melbourne and um, we moved to Western Australia for a little while. I worked over there for the Kalis group of companies in the shipyard in Fremantle and, um, and then... We decided we were going to go and live in New Zealand and he asked me to marry him. So we got married in July and we've just had our 31st anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) And, um, you know, got married through the pill packet out the window because I was taking it for just in case. Yep. And Kayleen was born 12 months later in July. So it didn't take long. Um, But then we lost, we had a lot of trouble after that, so we only managed to have Kayleen and we lost... um, two babies mm. along the way. So, um, you know, again, devastating. So just how important kids are yeah. is critical to who we are, I think. It's just my take on it. I don't imagine everyone's the same, but I like to think most per- most of us are. Yeah, the mm. children are the thing that matter. And as you say, yeah. it's the, the connection to loss sometimes that yeah. elevates how beautiful and amazing and powerful children are. Mm. I remember I've got two kids that are um, nearly, nearly 11 and, and 8. And uh, even when they, both of them were born, I was just going, oh, my gosh, the, the arms are in the right place. Like, <laughs> and, like you know, <laughs> is that, still not, <laughs> it's just a miracle. It in, is, isn't it? In it, it so is. many ways. And isn't it true, like when you say, I always say to people who are having their first child, I mean, you don't know what love is until, until your baby is born and you're holding it and you're looking at it. There's a moment in time where it just it's overwhelming. It's, it's natural. It's, that's what's supposed to happen. But it just, it's like a flood that flows through every part of your body and it's just all-encompassing. And that child, that's yours. And that's that instinct, that protective instinct. Yeah. And yeah. I think it grows and, and changes as well. Like I remember it just feeling so surreal, even after my first one, Patrick was born, um, that if someone had come to the door and said, right, your time's up, hand it back, I probably would have because it just felt so surreal. Um, but that depth of like, I'd, yeah. no way I'd do that now. <laughs> probably, no. Like it only took me a week or two to go, actually, no. Yeah. But, it, you know, it, initially it was like, this is... Yes. Amazing and incredible and bizarre and new and different. Uh, but, yeah, children have a way of changing us, yeah. that's for sure. I certainly felt that too, especially with um, with, with Kayleen because I'd had Ange and I never saw her. They mm. just took her away. I wasn't even going to start to tell you what that was like. That was awful. Um, so when I had Kayleen and no one was taking her away, I kind of felt like it was a, I was frightened to be connected 
Oh, it's really weird. And it took me about 12 hours. And I remember lying on, on the bed. I know when I just got up and went back to my room and they brought her and they put her there. Um, they went and did some whatever they were doing and then they brought her back and popped her there and I just looked at her and went to sleep. And then I looked at her the next morning and that's when it hit. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't even She's tell you still what here. happened. Oh, oh, really? St- oh, it's so tell emotional. Yeah. yeah. It was it was pretty, um, yeah, emotional. Anyway, whew. It's amazing, isn't it, how it's yeah. all still there yeah. and those memories are still connected and yeah. that bond is still there oh, totally. so strongly. Yeah, and this is it. I think I think the loss makes you feel stronger about these things. I mean, you know, they say that you, you don't really know what you've got until you haven't got it anymore, you know, and I know what it's like to lose a child, you know, even not to death, thank God, um, but to, you know, to the system and to... Just to bad luck a lot of the time. This is some of it is just bad luck. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's it's unpleasant. But you know what? I've got two beautiful daughters and a granddaughter. I've got an amazing husband. I've got an enormously beautiful family, and life is great. And you appreciate those. Even I appreciate more, them more than so. You touched on yeah that that sense of loss is can be the thing that gives you the the drive and the recognition for what you you do yes. have. Yeah. I imagine that that's a big part behind why Bravehearts has to happen um, and why it's become and continues to become, you know, Australia's biggest advocate and organisation yeah. around child protection. And ferocious, um, ferociously protective. So when, you know, when the Kayleen was harmed and she disclosed what was happening for her. How old was she at that? She was point? seven or six, just about to turn seven just a tiny little thing. I don't know what happened, but I just, I was furious. I mean, I was furious. And Was it someone known to you? Was it someone? It was my husband's father who I loved and adored and trusted totally. But it turned out that he'd been sexually offending every female member of that family practically, 40 years, two generations, and no one ever said anything because either he had threatened them, they were frightened that no one would believe them because he was a very affable, well-known, well-liked man, president of this, you know, whatever, member of that committee. You know, he'd walk down the street like he was the mayor, you know, waving people. And so, um, yeah, so I think, so no one ever said anything, not even to each other. I mean, so many of them. And so we didn't, I didn't know. I had no idea. And we just walked right into that. Anyway, she did, she did disclose, and that says a lot about my husband. So she was six. Ian and I came back to Brisbane to live here because my parents live here, and I just went back to work. I just, you know, went back to work and did what I did. I used to run companies, national and otherwise, from the administration finance point of view. And, um, and then I got... And then I fell pregnant with Kayleen and I was super excited and we were, and I didn't want to miss a thing. I did not. I missed it with Ange. I didn't, and I didn't even know Ange then. That was before we, she came back into our life. I wanted to see every little first thing myself firsthand. So I just took two years off work because we could and I wanted to stay home and just enjoy this new person in our lives. And, of course, what, what's happening there is that they're building, so I get bored is what I'm trying to say. I get bored. Mm because I'm dangerous when I've got nothing to do. I'm absolutely. <laughs> I, I am the a person very... who's running companies. And, and like, yeah. yeah. Yep. I mean, and she was beautiful and it was great, but I, could, I remember poking her, trying to wake her up so we could play, you know. <laughs> and so I was, had a lot too much time on my hands. 
I think. And yeah. um, there was a toll, there was a, a community protest going on about a toll road through Australia's largest remaining remaining habitat, which was just up the road round the corner from me. And I started to take a bit of an interest in that campaign. Long story short, I finished up running the campaign. <laughs> Problem with a board person who's very busy and gets things done. Oh, but I learnt. So I've got the business background. This is all the universe doing its thing. Now I'm learning about politics and community campaigning. And we had some of the biggest, biggest demonstrations since the Vietnam War in Queensland. And I was learning off the best, Barry Fitzpatrick. He's a, he's a Frank, of Franklin Dam campaigning. He was a mate, he was living there. I got to know him and I was learning. They were teaching me. Everybody was teaching me. So many amazing people in that group. Um, but of course, what happened is we went to the election. We were all saying, no, no way, toe away, you know. And the government, a Goss government at the time it was, went to the polls and said, okay, we won't, we won't do that. So we all went off and we voted. And I did vote for um, the Labor government at that time. And then, of course, they got elected and next thing we know in our local paper, there's a, there's a diagram of three options for the road. You can pick A, B or C. And in my head I went, no, wait a minute, there's another option. There's a D. Bugger off. Yeah. No way. Is that happening? Yeah. You know, that's, and I felt totally robbed of my vote. And I do feel strongly about things and I feel strongly about the men and women that have died fighting for this country to give us our democracy. You know, that, that they, they fought for our future, for our democracy, our right to vote. So don't steal that from me by lying to me. I just was furious again. So I got involved with this group, like really got involved with it then. And, of course, everyone's busy. We've got mortgages, everything's going on, so everyone's sort of, um, I'm at home. So I'm, I'm into it up to my <laughs> neck, you know, and I'm loving it. I'm yeah. finding something out about myself that I didn't know. And that is I actually don't mind a bit of argy-bargy. And I love facts. I love research. So, you know, I, I did a whole bunch of research, submitted that whole area, topography, geology, the, the whole thing, just all in this big box full of data and this report to the um, national estate. I nominated it for the national estate and it got up. It was a recommended for the national estate. And I learned about politics and I learned about lies and I learned about terms of reference and I learned about lots of things. Anyway, we won the camp. Next election comes along. I'm running as a candidate um, in that election. And, um, and no, I didn't. Sorry, I beg your pardon, that's wrong. I handed out at the day was the first, anyway, that's probably a bit too much detail, but yeah. it was a was a, a um, election trick or a, a way to do it that Barry Fitzpatrick came up with, which was just vote one and just leave the rest off because we, we had optional preferential voting right. at that time. Yep. So, and we, of course, we, Goss government lost government, and not just along the seats where the tollway were going, but there was a, he had the hang on by one, Mundingborough, and then they lost that and we had a new government for better or for worse yes. or whatever. Yeah. We won. There was a change. We won. And I went back to work and, you know, I got, I was probably a bit bored, to be honest, because it's not as interesting mm. as all this, you know. You, this whole idea of waking up in the morning and you don't know what's going to happen next 
is really invigorating. I mean, for some people, it'd be a pain in the neck. They like their life structured and they yeah. like to know what's coming down that chute before it hits them in the face. <laughs> <laughs> You're but, going, bring it on. Oh, Something I'm going, different. Bring it and on. Where can we have yeah. an impact? And who do I need to talk to? And how's yeah. this piece of the puzzle going to work? I found that out about, and I did not know that about myself. So then Senator Kernow, um, who was leader of the Australian Democrats at the time, rang me and asked me to come and work with her. And I said, no. Um, not really interested in being a politician, thinks all the same. And then I won't even bother going into detail. I had this other idea. I was talking to government about it. They said, yes, you've got to come and meet the minister. I went to meet the minister and the minister was incredibly disappointing. Didn't know his... I, I felt like he didn't know his thing, his portfolio. Um, I was probably a bit naive myself, but, you know, that's how I felt about it. And I, I came out of that and thought, oh, I'm going to... We can do better than this. Surely we can do better than this. So I rang Senator Curnow's office up and said, yeah, if that's still growing that job, I'll take it. So I did. So in that role, that's my next step of learning. I'm learning about the federal parliament. I'm learning, and Cheryl was a hard taskmaster when it comes to writing speeches and press releases and so forth. She's, she's red pen all over everything. And I learned a lot from her to, you know, I learned an awful lot from her. I watched her very carefully. I watched how she operated and how she made one and one equal two in her world and, you know, all that. So I learned, I learned, I learned, I learned. And then it was 1996 and the federal election was on and I was, and I was the state leader for the Australian Democrats. So I was leading the Australian Democrats in Queensland. I wasn't on the ballot for the everyone. The, the Democrats, I think like the Greens, are, well, Maybe not. We're very much a, a federally based party. You know, no one really wanted to do the state because that wasn't achievable. Everyone joined to be senator. Um, but I didn't. I didn't want to be a senator because I didn't want to leave my home and my family. I was happy to be the state leader and I was, that's where I was focused. So I ran in, the federal, in a federal seat to keep the bastards honest, which I'm still passionate about today. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a thing that drives me. And... Um, I said to Ian, why don't you take Kayleigh and go to New Zealand, visit your family and I can put the blinkers on and not have to cook and clean and all those things so, and I can, I can just campaign. Yeah. And so that's what happened. She went to New Zealand with Ian and uh, she disclosed it was bedtime. She didn't want to go to bed. But she, anyone who's got children, you've got children, yes, right, so yeah. you know they cry, they whinge, but then they hurt yeah. and there's a different sound in their, in their crying and in their persona when it's serious. Yeah. And he picked that up, that it was serious. So he said, you know, because Poppy had made her her own bedroom, pink, lovely pink bedroom, and she wasn't interested, she wasn't going there. She didn't want to be in that room. So, and she was getting herself very worked up apparently. So he picked her up and held her and, and said, come and lie down, come come with me, come on, come and lie down and come and lie down with Daddy then, in, in, you know, where she normally sleeps mm. in our room. And she was, you know, really upset. And he said, what's wrong? What's wrong? I'm scared. What are you scared of? I'm scared of Poppy. Why are you scared of Poppy? Because he touches me. And I can see my husband's life is just coming down around his ears. Where does he touch you? And she shows points. Mm. And, you know, he had to make a decision right then. Now, his father, for him, he, his mum died when he was little. So dad's everything. And as a father, he was amazing. He took those boys hunting, fishing, diving. They loved him mm. and he loved them, no question about that. But the rest, the girls in the family, different story. It was all facade. It was not hardly one of, one of them that he didn't touch. So he lied there with her and he knew, he knows me. He knows I'm 
I'm a fighter and I'm not a silent, I'm not known for my silence. And so he had to decide, he said to Kayleen, he had to lie there and think, am I, he said, don't worry, I've got you, I won't let him anywhere near you. You just lie here, you go. So he waited till she was asleep. Out in the lounge room, everyone had come to say hi to Ian because he'd just arrived from Australia, Mm. so all the family were there. Um, But in that moment, he had to decide whether he was going to protect his father and say to Kayleen, well, don't tell anybody, leave it with me, I'll protect you, Mm. or whether he was going to protect his daughter and tell me. So, And he chose his daughter because he is the most amazing man on the planet. I adore him. And, um, and you know, thank God for that because that doesn't, that's not normally what happens. No, this, it's this a sliding whole... doors moment, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So he went back in the lounge and told everyone he wasn't feeling very well, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, got his father out in the shed and, you know, had a word, mm-hmm. shall I say. And um, and then when everyone, the lights were out and everything was, everyone was asleep, he went up the street and he rang me and I'm back here in Brisbane and... I get the phone call and it was he was indiscernible. It was awful. It was just, as you say, it was a moment in time where I could absolutely identify, probably for the second time in my life, tragedy. Hmm. And I didn't know what to do about it because I'm a controlling, I, I like to, I am mean, a control freak, I admit it. Um, and I, I'm a solution person, so I like to find answers to things. I yeah. like to fix things, you know. And a I fixer, can imagine not the, another fixer. The, the distance would have been huge. I couldn't get to her. My yeah. husband, the two people, you know, I had Ange with me, thank God. But I couldn't get to them. I couldn't hold them. I couldn't cuddle them. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. And I, had to, and I didn't know what to do. This is the thing. I didn't know what to do. Mm. This is not something that I ever anticipated would arrive at my little white picket fence. No. I thought this belonged to people who were poor or, you know, it was sort of more substance abuse in there or abuse, child abuse or something. Not not my world. Mm. My world was perfect, I thought. I mean, it was. I had a beautiful husband, beautiful family. Gosh, couldn't get any better, honestly. Great job. But it does happen. Yeah. happens to everybody um, and it does happen in every, every socioeconomic. It doesn't take any prisoners there. So what was the impetus from that moment, from that phone call to then starting up Brave Hearts and going, not only am I going to protect my child and my family and mm. I'm going to stand for what's not okay within my family, but I'm actually going to make this a public. Initially I didn't think about anyone else except ourselves. I was totally focused. My husband, my child... <laughs> are in New Zealand and this is happening and I'm here. What am I going to do? So I got, I got. well, I was in a mess. I was a total mess. So I asked Ange, um, my eldest daughter, to go and talk to the neighbours because we had a couple of GPs. So um, they came over and I said, just give me, just give me some drugs. Just put, I just, I can't get in my car, my head's, I'm exploding. My brain was just exploding. It was amazing. It was incredible, horrible, horrible, horrible. And I just needed to stop to stop thinking. I just needed to get out of my own head. Mm. So they gave me some drugs and thought that might sort me out till the morning, but of course it didn't. A couple of hours later I'm up and I've, I'm on my computer. Now this is 1996, so she's a clunky old dial-up, <laughs> you know. Yep. But even then I looked up child sexual abuse. What is that? Who, you know, who who does that? Why? Do, I didn't know anything about mm. this. So in the middle of the night, through the night, I'm learning about this issue and I'm learning what happens to kids. I'm learning at that back then, one in four girls it was and one in eight 
sorry, one in eight boys, one in four girls, they reckon were sexually assaulted before they turn 18. And I'm thinking, how did I have, how did we have, I've had two children now, no one ever said to me, here's some stats on that. You know, this is something to look out for. They'll teach you about brush teeth, teeth brushing and, you know, immunisation and mm. breastfeeding, but no one said, oh, and by the way, 25% of children. Are those statistics still the same or similar? Yeah, one in five. In fact, it's probably, it's less one in 4.5 or something. It's just horrific enough to say one in five in some way before they turn 18. And I think it's now even 15. I mean, the number's horrific. Horrendous. Horrific, just horrendous. And I'm looking at what happens for these kids and I'm seeing suicide, drug abuse, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, sexual dysfunction. And I'm thinking that is no way, no way any of that is going to happen to my child, right? That is not happening to my child. So then I get on there and I've got a how to vote ballot, you know, from the Democrats because the election was on. So it's a Senate how to vote and it's a massive piece of, you know, it's like toilet paper, that thing is so long. So I had one of those, turned around and because the election was looming at the same time and I'm writing on the back of this, I've still got this piece of paper, Australian Story did their thing and I found it and gave it to them and there's a shot of it. Of all these organisations that I was going to ring as soon as I could and and get some help. I needed to know what to do. Anyway, I rang the next morning. Not one of them could help me. Not one of them dealt with this issue. Not one of them. And support services for families and children didn't exist. You had to, the girls had to be 15 and they were going to a sexual assault support service somewhere. There was nothing, nothing. And I finished up getting my help from Christchurch, from a rape right, a crisis centre in Christchurch. She said, these are the things you do, da-da-da-da-da-da. So I rang New Zealand. I fabricated an illness. I said, my father's very ill. You, you guys need to come home straight away because what I did learn was that, you you know, to get her out of there, not to let the Spanish Inquisition take over mm-hmm. and blame her. Um, she needed to get out of that situation. So yeah. she came home um, and we went to police eventually. We... Um, we had to think about that because it's not something you do lightly. It took us a little while to get to that space. Plus I wanted my husband to get to that space. Yes, yeah. Ian needed to, to do this. Otherwise I didn't want it to destroy our relationship because the the, the best thing that she has is Your us. Your daughter needed that too, didn't yeah. she? Yeah, yeah even if Even if nothing else happened, she had us mm. and we believed her and we love her and that I knew already was the strongest gift we could give to her, not going to police. But, of course, going to police, getting a conviction is for a child. That's that's nirvana because he gets in trouble or she because women offend as well, but I don't. So, therefore, the, the confusion for children is, is complete. I didn't get in trouble. They did. They did the wrong thing. I didn't. Yes. Uh, because it's all very confusing, this issue for kids. Um, so, um, yeah, so... And then I looked at, uh, and I went at diff- about it very differently to everybody else as well because I wasn't quiet about it. Talking about child sexual assaults, like walking into a cockroach-infested room and switching on the light and watching everyone just scatter mm. back then, it was, no one even said the words, let alone dealt with it. And I thought, <clears throat> then I looked across the road I'm still in the Democrats and I'm looking around and I lived at Daisy Hill. Across the road is Logan, there's Woodridge, Kingston, all of these, you know, really tough suburbs where people are blue-collar, they're really working hard, a lot of dysfunction in there. And I'm looking at all the the problems that are coming out of there and I think drug abuse, 
crime. Everything I'd read on that computer, those kids, they're not to blame. This is happening to them and we're ignoring it. Who, who are we as a civilization? Who are we as adults if we know this is going on and we're not doing anything to help them? And I knew there was nothing to help them. So I said to Ian, well, let's start something to help them. And that's how it started. And where did the name Brave Hearts come from? A radio interview with Ian Maurice the Bear on 4BC in Brisbane. Never forget it. We were People's Alliance Against Child Sexual Abuse. PAXA means nothing. When you say PAXA, means nothing. So it didn't mean. So we're on the lookout for a name. Good old government acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Horrible. Yes, yeah. So, um, I, I was just doing an interview with Ian Maurice and this lady rang, I was talk back, so she, this lady called, I don't know who she is to this day, I have no idea who she is, but she rang and she said, um, I just want to, you know, say that you are brave hearts. You and your family, you're just brave hearts. And I thought, that's, that's it. it. Yeah. That's it. So we registered it and we're brave hearts. It's powerful, really powerful. Yeah. To... And there's thousands of us. Yeah. We're everywhere. Did the silence back then drive your passion yes. to break that silence? Yeah. When people I, didn't want to even hear the words. It was a challenge, you know. It's a challenge that attracts me. Um, and just knowing that kids are being hurt, knowing what it does, I've seen this, I've, I've seen this in my own child. You know, talk about protective, it's like ferocious. The, the, the lioness came out, keep away from my kids, you know. But now I've got, all, I've got all these other kids now that I see very much as, I felt like, I know they're not my responsibility, but I feel like they were because I knew something their parents didn't. And I had a capacity to change something that their parents didn't. So I felt like I, I had to do that. I don't know where that came from because my parents are very um, materialistic. You know, they're Dutch immigrants. They came here, they worked hard. They, you know, just look after yourself, make sure you you just do that. And they, they couldn't get their head around how I could volunteer my time for a toll road. For koalas? Are we serious? Ian, what is she doing? You know, like <laughs> yes, really, yes. really difficult. So I don't come from that space. But during this whole um, part of my life, looking outwardly outside of me and my immediate family, looking at environmental issues, which are very important to me as well, and looking, and then this happening, looking at society and what's happening for children. And then I've got economic interests as well. So I've got it, I've sort of wrapped it all up mm. and called it Bravehearts and, and know that we have, to, we have to help these kids. These kids are, they're just kids, you know, and if adults don't step up, and we're still not stepping up, we're doing a better job, but we're still got a long way to go. What are you most proud of about the work that Brave Hearts has done to date and will continue oh, to so do? so many. I can, I'm, the moment you said that, I, I saw about 10 or 20 faces. <laughs> I can see them now. Um, I think the individual, you know, the one, the one, um, knowing that there are people on the planet today oh, <clears throat> who are breathing because of what we did to help them. Um, mothers and fathers, you know, who, who have their children in their arms because of what we do. Um, and then I look at the Royal Commission we just had and know how much we had to do with that. Like we did have so much to do with that, uh, to, to, to change the momentum in the country that that would 
again, straws. So the Peter Hollingworth calling for his resignation, exposing that whole church thing where they move pedophiles around and all of this stuff started then. And that momentum has just kept building and building and building. Then he was the Governor-General, he resigned. Big deal, international news. All of a sudden Australia is starting to be the country we envisage it to be, that it stands up for its children. So proud of all of that. Um, not for the man, Peter Hollingworth, but for the culture, for the for the culture that was exposed, you know, um, and he was the head of the church, so that's where it is. What am I most... I'm proud of my children. I'm so proud of my family. They're my biggest pride, my daughter and my husband, um, my daughters and husband, because, I mean, the courage. What I've done is I've spoken about it. Now, no one did that before. I couldn't do that without them supporting me in that. And even though Kayleen was only little at the time, we used to sit and talk about it, you know. And it's the silence and the secrecy and the shame, the three S's plus fear, that are our kids' very worst enemy and the pedophile's best friend. We can't fall victim to that. The The culture is to do that. The tendency is to just, well, we don't want to talk about it and we certainly don't want to tell anybody because we don't want to be labelled this, that or the other. I'm a, I'm a survivor, so therefore I must be psychotic, I must be whatever I must be. I'm wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah, somehow. Yeah. You know, this is right from the very beginning when I started talking about it, I was breaking the law um, because... By identifying myself as the parent of a child, I never identified Kayleen publicly, mm. but I would say I'm the, I'm the parent of a child who's been sexually assaulted. That would lead to the identity of my child, right? as though that's going to be a problem for her. That was the fear. I've got a letter from a police officer that said, don't do that. The pedophiles will prey on her. I said, no, they won't, because she's empowered. She's not a victim anymore. I'm not making her a victim. Hmm. And and then the and then the government said, oh, you know, you um, you're, you're breaking the law. You have to. You can't do this. So we had a big meeting with government, with all the media were there. They weren't allowed to bring their cameras, and I was being set up. I knew it. I remember it. I was sitting by the door, I knew the door, and I looked at the door and I thought, I'm out of here. I was so tempted because I was going to get creamed, but I didn't. I stayed. And in the end, I just said to them, you, you're not going to tell me to be quiet about this and you're not going to tell my daughter, shh, don't tell anybody. Because the moment you do that, you put a ball and chain around her ankle that says she's less than, that what happened to her makes her something that she's broken, what, damaged, less beautiful, less innocent, less something? What, what, what are you saying that she can't do this? You know, I'm not going to be silent and if she wants to speak about it, she can. That's her choice. You know, I'm not doing this. So we changed the law, Section 189. Because what's worse almost than the sexual offending is the secret. Mm. It's the feeling of disempowerment. It's saying these offenders take the power of children from them. They take it away from them. They've got their power over there. And I say to, to people who, who've survived this, go and take your power back, you know, Go and take it back. It's not his, it's yours or hers. This, as I say, women, mm. it belongs to you. Take it back. Now, that that power shift that happens when a child is a little person and they're frightened because this is a big person and this big person can do whatever they want. Probably they love this big person. Mm. It's probably a parent or someone very close to the family, usually, 90, you know, between 85, 95% of the time. So... That the whole dynamic for children changes as they get older. 
being able to speak up, being able to put a voice to it, to have my voice heard and have my voice listened to because what you're describing is that we won't even listen to it. We're not allowed to. Don't talk about that. Don't keep it quiet. What could someone do who might be listening who are lit up by their own ferocity? ferocity? Oh, <laughs> who, educate your children. Yeah, so <laughs> Number to one. talk to our kids. Yeah, our kids need to know that. Even if we're not concerned that anything might have happened. Look, have a conversation. Get, get on the, if I can say, the Bravehearts website and, you know, ditto, ditto's um, adventure. Get it. It's a parent pack. It's a whole bunch of fun and it's the best protection your children will ever have. Sit down, play with them play this game with them and let them understand that whenever they feel unsafe or unsure, it's okay for them to say no. This is very powerful messages through song. This is for three to eight-year-olds. It works. We know it works. We've proven it time and time and time again. This program is fully funded in Tasmania. Go Tasmania, the only state in the country who's decided that their kids are important enough to be educated about this, effectively educated, not just stuck in a curriculum at the bottom of the pack. The teachers don't want to teach this. They don't have the words. They don't have the language. They don't feel comfortable. We've got a million cultures out there that if you said penis and vagina, you know, they'd come through the door with a meat axe. Mm. And so we've got all these cultures out there where that understand you don't need to use the technical terms um, for body parts to be able to express, we just say private parts. Feeling safe, yeah. feeling yeah. in control. My mouth and my chest are my private parts between my legs and my bottom. If anyone touches, <laughs> I say, no. Nah. And that's the song. They're my private parts. And the same goes for bullying and whatnot. These are, but then the parents can talk to their children about the, the, you know, the correct terms, et cetera, if they choose to. So what's happened is we've been doing this program for a long time, but the government has decided that we've got to use the proper terms in schools. And they've said to the teachers, this is how you teach it. You talk talk about penis and you talk about vaginas. Now, adults don't sit around talking about penis and vaginas. (laughs) Teachers are not comfortable doing this and they're frightened of the, Ramification, So it just doesn't get taught. It doesn't get taught and that's why it's not compulsory. But what about if you could teach it effectively without that? Of course you can and it's not necessary. In order to make a police complaint, you don't need to know. Your children don't need to know the correct terms. They absolutely don't. So why? Why? Why are we robbing our kids of the opportunity to learn about their personal safety? Because some academic somewhere is stuck on this concept of kids need to understand these terms. So we can actually shift them, do it differently, don't lose the vision for Australia being the safest place for children in the world. That's it. Which is a big vision. They say it's shameful, you know, if if, if we don't talk about the terms and we, then we're teaching kids that their bodies are shameful because we're not giving them names and it's just, I find it so, I just, it doesn't work in practice. We can yeah. see what happens in practice and what pra- what's happening in practice. Kids are disclosing. Kids are disclosing and that's what we want. Yeah. Let's bring it out of the shame, out of the silence. And obviously this has been such a drive, such passion and force for mm. you. Before we jumped on to, to Mike... You mentioned that this is the year that you're going to turn 60. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, I don't know about that. I feel and, like I said 25 in my yeah. head. I, I honestly cannot conceive that I'm that old, that I'm that old person. It doesn't, I, I just can't, my, it does not compute, you know, and I don't feel it. So I'll just pretend I'm not. 
Yes, we can do that. <laughs> On the flip side, you were saying this is also a time yeah. of reflection to go. It actually does make what you think. What does it mean? Where am I at? And what else? What else am I going to contribute? What yeah. does that look like for you? Do you think scary? Scary. Um, I make a joke. In my contemplation, I, I thought, oh, okay, so the first 30 years of your life are to, are to find out who you are, you know, and the second 30 years is to live that out. So that's when you have your mortgage and your kids and your family and it's when your career um, and, and then the last 30 years and just trying to stay alive, you know. <laughs> I had a bit of a joke about it. But and seriously, I think about my um, 50th, which was obviously 10 years ago, and I feel like that was yesterday. We had a big party, you know, went for three days, the band stayed. We had a ball. And I think if the next 10 years are going to go that fast, I'm really going to scuttle on here and um, have a really big think about how I'm going to spend these last 30 years or so, if I'm lucky enough. Um, and it does make you, it puts things into perspective because I think b- before now I hadn't really thought about time. I just get up in the morning and go hard. Now I'm thinking about time. So after I find, crawl out of the vineyard in <laughs> in the Marlborough Sound where I'm going quietly to celebrate this. After your four-day ordeal. <laughs> oh, I'm just going quietly with some friends and we're just going to go over there and um, have, have a bit of fun over there and take it take some time. Mm. Um, but, but then I'm thinking about my life in 10-year chunks going forward, not in infinite. Um, so the next 10 years are going to be very important. Um, to make, I think, you know, to be in effect. I look at my parents. My parents are still 92. Dad's as sharp as a tack. He hasn't lost any of his wit. Um, Mum's a bit slower, but they're 92 and 88. And so, you know, if all things being equal, I could be here for a little bit. But I think effective-wise, the next 10 years are going to be critical. So I have to now think very carefully about how I do that, how I spend those 10 years. Do I retire and go and become a grey nomad and think, well, I've done my thing? I've done my part. So many of my friends have said to me, Hedy, you've done enough. You know, just chill out and go and enjoy the next 20 years as you've, while you're still mobile and able to get it. And, or, do I, or do I crank it up, right? And I'm going to crank it up. Yeah, I get this, the impression mm. that the second's going to happen. I'm going to try to crank it up. <laughs> I feel like I'm on the planet for this reason. I feel like my whole life has just evolved and fell in front of me for this reason. And I don't want to go die wondering. I, I want to do everything I can while I'm breathing to make sure that we're doing the best we can for our kids. Practically, what gives you, how do you get your energy to, to keep going? Because it is busy and it's hard and it's draining, even though it's great stuff and the, you're seeing the dial move even mm. slowly, but mm. it is moving. What, mm. what do you do to look after yourself so that you do have the energy for the next 10 years? I'm really, really crap at looking after myself, <laughs> and especially lately. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm putting on weight, and I'm not exercising, and it's all just um, becoming a bit much, you mm. know. But I'm in the middle of a big campaign, so that's what happens. You, you, your your own personal stuff goes to the side, yep. and you you sort of wake up in the morning knowing this is what I have to do today, and you don't you're not thinking about anything else. You're just getting on the computer, on the phone. Let's do it. Let's go. I don't know what keeps me get I mean, it's hard work, no question about it. Personally, um, very soul-destroying sometimes because, you know. You're hearing even, these stories. You're well, like... two days ago I got another death threat. I mean, this is, this is what it is. This is our life. So what do you do about that? Well, I just go 
get stuffed, you cowardly bastards. You know, I'm not stopping because someone's... Because that's what happens. These people threaten kids and threaten women and threaten men, you know, women can be awful. I can't say that enough. I know I've said it a few times Mm. now, but I need people to hear that. Mm. Women are not these angelic things that we like to think we're all these wonderful carers, nurturers. Um, Women can be quite um, abusive and women can be offenders and they can certainly help offenders to to hurt children. So it's not a male versus female thing. It's a children thing. Mm. So what keeps me going is the children. I mean, I see them almost every day. I look in their eyes. Mm. I know what they're enduring. I listen to them cry, I listen to them laugh and I listen when they when they get their freedom finally. Um, I just know I'm not done yet. There's more to do. Oh, there's so much more to do. I won't get it all done. But I want to get my... I, I, need, I need the government to put the children at the top of the list and I'm... You know, we hear all these, isn't it interesting? At, <clears throat> I'm a bit anti-politicians at the moment in my head because I'm frustrated by them. And I know there are some of them really awesome people who care passionately about children, so I'm not saying that. But they're in, they're in these little fraternities in there. There's the Labor Party and the Liberal Party and the Greens. And it's not their policy to do this. They've got other policy agendas in place. And so children's issues generally drop to the, you know, to, not to the height that they need to be there. They're there, people care about it. But there's not a politician in this country who's not, they've not badgered every day, if not, you know, every week, but certainly I would say every day, by people who are complaining about the family law system, fathers, mothers, the thing's a mess. There is no more broken, dangerous, deadly system in this country than the family law system and nobody disagrees. So the government and Christian Porter, I know that they care about this. I know they do and I know he's working really hard to do what they can do at a federal level, but the constitution gives child welfare um, to the to the states and territories. The federal government has, um, for, through the federal court, has property dissemination and where the children shall live. And these two systems are not talking to each other, and that's the problem. So the federal government can't fix it. The state government can't fix it because they're different jurisdictions. The only way, the only way that these kids are ever going to be rescued from this, and it is barbaric. I I promise you, I don't say that lightly. I've never said anything I don't mean or anything I can't prove. And I'm telling you, kids are dying. They're cutting themselves. They're starving themselves to death. They're committing suicide. So are mothers. So are fathers. This place is, this whole system is just broken. It's so broken. It's so broken. And nobody disagrees with me from the highest levels. And yet we're not we're not prepared to have a royal commission. So why do I want a royal commission? Why? You know, some people say, oh, no, not another royal commission, you know. Because it's the only legal framework that can, that can overcome the jurisdictional issues, state versus federal, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, the courts versus government. It's the only way, even if they just took 50 matters, and I've said this to government, just take 50. You don't have to interview a million people. You don't have to have a big Royal Commission. Just take 50 matters, we will give them to you and forensically examine them yourselves so that you know what we know, right, and expose it to the public so that every mum and dad out there and every grandparent knows what toxic, disgusting, 
oh, I can't find the words without swearing my head off, is going on in these courts. Kids are being hurt, seriously hurt. They're being sent to live with pedophiles, you know, known pedophiles, for goodness sake, and the mothers get supervised contact, if any. I mean, this is, this is, um, and fathers, I've got a father, bless his heart. I mean, he's, he marries his childhood sweetheart. They have two beautiful girls. She, did, she tells him, oh, well, dad did this to me when I was little. So they keep away from the grandfather, her father. Mm. But the marriage dissolves. The house is sold. Guess where she goes to live with the two little girls? And this dad is beside himself because mm. there's nothing he can do. He can't prove it. So what we're not doing is we're not talking to the children, right? We're not actually, the system is not catering to listening to children. So that's my big mission in life. And we need this Royal Commission not because we need to investigate. We need the public to understand what's happening. I need all parents out there to understand what's happening and to avoid that place like the plague because it's deadly. So that children have a voice. Children have to have a voice. We have to introduce child advocacy centres into Australia so that when a child discloses, they don't go to a police station. They go to a child advocacy centre and they're interviewed by a forensic psychologist, right, So that who's trained in, in interviewing, who's trained in child um, protection and child welfare and who ha- is a psychologist so they've got all of that other training behind them instead of a police officer who's had one week eye care. And we've got the funds to do it here in Queensland, but the Queensland, they gave us the money but they didn't, they didn't tell the troops how to, how to behave. So now we're not getting uh, a, a true trial. Because the Department of Child Safety and the and police don't want us to interview children. They don't even want us to view it. They don't want to be critiqued. It's an absolute disgrace. And I'm f- so frustrated, disappointed. And and meanwhile, kids kids keep getting hurt. And it's just, I, I can't know what I know and not fight. And so that's what keeps me going. Clearly that's what's going <laughs> to keep you going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to come full circle. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Mm. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Oh, I think we all need to do something we're proud of. We go back to that deathbed, you know, what's legacy? I think legacy is a really important word. Even if it is that I was the best mother I could be or I was the best father I could be, I did these things. Standout life means something different to everybody. Um... You know, I don't know. For me it means, well, I, I believe, I honestly believe that the universe has lined me up. I'm a, like a duck. All the ducks are lined up and this is what I'm supposed to do. So I'm just going to do it to the best of my ability. I know I'm a fair person. I know I don't take sides of mothers or fathers, but you'd never know that reading our Facebook page. I mean, the the, the venom... And I think it's, I feel sorry for those people actually because it's driven by their own experience and they feel robbed. They feel the system is broken. And because I'm a female and I'm standing up for mothers because mothers are generally the innocent parties in the work that I do, um, I'm not so much domestic violence as I am child sexual assault. Um, there's, this, uh, there's this divide and it, that saddens me because these are mothers and fathers who are fighting amongst themselves and their children are being hurt by that fight. And one is blaming the other one for doing it. But no, they're not stopping. Neither are stopping to protect their child. And it's just, I feel sorry for them, but I feel more sorry for their kids. And to be a voice for that. Yeah, actually stand in for them. And I need to, yeah, stand in for them. I need to stand up for 
what I believe in and, and for these kids who are, don't have anyone doing that for them or and because they're probably incapacitated. So I think, yeah. Are you proud of the work that you're doing? Oh, totally. I'm honoured. I'm privileged. I feel, I feel very, um, uh, yeah, really humbled, you know, because I feel lucky because I don't have to live these people's lives. I mean, imagine, imagine yourself. Imagine this happened for you, and your imagine your kids came home and said this is happening, and the, and the, and you have to send your children every other weekend back to stay with your partner, knowing, and the kids are coming home saying, "Why aren't you protecting me, mummy? Why aren't you stopping this, mummy? Mama, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. You have to go. How is that? You see what's going on here, and same for the, some of the dads that have to that dad that has to mm, live and breathe his life while his kids are living in a house with a pedophile. I mean. You know, it's tough. So I feel privileged and totally humbled and um, motivated to do what I can do, but it also is very distressing. And I think I don't know whether it's, you know, 22 years of doing this, I've, I'm not a, a person to cry very easily you know, at all. Like, But I'm finding lately I'm moved to tears more than I've ever been in my life. And I think I, this family law stuff, is just breaking me because it is so bad. Like seriously, it would people would be horrified if they saw what I see. And if you want a glimpse, get on the website and have a look at Abby's project. A double B E Y Abby's project. Little Abby committed suicide. This so this is a project about the family court in her name. You know, had to go and visit a pedophile father every other weekend. Um, so. I wouldn't reckon, it's not recommended reading. Certainly the case studies aren't <laughs> recommended reading, but for those that are but technically interested. But things that we don't know about, and I think it comes back to what you were saying, even the start of Brave Hearts, is that it, it, in silence nothing changes, but the moment we can bring it out of silence, and that's obviously a big yeah. legacy of what you're doing and continue to do. Yeah. Um, and hearing you today, I can't help but go, that's actually a responsibility for all of us totally. that have heard you, is wherever you are, whatever you're doing, in whatever capacity, we need to bring it out of that silence. We do. We need to, we need to act. You know, we need, to, we need to believe these children. That's what needs to happen and need to protect them. But the system won't let you. I'm telling you now, the system won't let... Um, protective parents protect their children because they see it as um, they, they accuse one parent of coaching against the other. And it does happen. I mean, don't do that to your children. If your marriage breaks down, you know, think about your children. Don't be attacking the other parent to your children. Turning your children against one parent or the other is abusive in itself. But it happens all the time. So we as adults have to stop doing that to our children. That is abusing them. That has to stop. So much we have to do. But what can one person do? Stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time, Hetty. And I can't, like, enjoy your 60th in that yeah, winery. Yeah, in a winery. <laughs> Put your feet up for a few days and then come back and tackle it. <laughs> I will. I promise. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Hetty. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. 
If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.